Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. There's a song from the 60s or the 70s. I don't know when it was. There's a train a-coming. Have y'all heard about that song? No. No. It's the gospel train. There's a train a-coming, and what are we commanded to do? Get on board. I made a comment on Wednesday evening that I sense coming out of the pandemic, and especially out of the lean days around Advent because everybody's traveling, and uh, visiting, I sense that the locomotive engine is gathering steam. Do y'all sense that? I do. Um, So let's get on board the gospel train. Announcement time. Uh, You. He doesn't know he's going to do this, but... Go ahead and make your announcement. Oh, okay. For anyone that doesn't know. Okay. Sweet. For anyone that doesn't know, Kate is about 20 weeks pregnant at this point. 19, so... Like I said, the locomotive is gaining momentum, (laughs) gaining steam. Okay, we're really happy. So now, officially, I can put that on the prayer list, okay, for the cones. All right, let's open with prayer. Father, as we look at our identity in Christ, remind us that that's who we are. We do many things in life, and they're important. We teach, we preach. We minister, we go to work, we raise children, we're fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, all of those things are important. The most important thing is that we find our identity in you through your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to learn more about what that means over the next few weeks, for it is in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. It was a cold December evening. 6th of December, 1894, Adolf Beck uh, walked out of his hotel room and was immediately arrested. He was accosted by Adelaide Messonnier, who accused him of three weeks earlier robbing her of her jewels. She charged that under the false identity of John Smith that he had swindled her. He went by some other names, but that was the one that she knew him by. And later he was accused by another woman named Daisy Grant of doing the same thing. And Audley's maid and Daisy later picked him out of a lineup of seven men. And not only that, handwriting experts said that some of the things that he had written to swindle them, in fact, were in his own handwriting. And so he was convicted to seven years in prison in the uh, uh, British prison. So he got out in uh, 1901. And a few days later, he was arrested again on another charge, and he was sentenced then to five years in prison. Altogether, he had gone through three lineups, and 16 women had identified him as the swindler, John Smith. Ten days, fortunately, into his sentence in 1901, The real culprit, as you can see on the screen, they don't really look that much alike, but Frederick Meyer was caught in the act, and he was convicted of all of those crimes. I don't know how this was such a case of mistaken identity when you look at them. They sort of resemble each other, don't they? And this then later led to a landmark decision in British jurisprudence that today, now, no one can be convicted of a crime in Britain solely based on the evidence of eyewitnesses. Uh, Beck was paid 5,000 pounds in reparations, which doesn't sound like much, 
But when you take the pound to dollar conversion plus the conversion from 1901 to 2022, it was over $900,000. So I don't know if he was well paid. He spent uh, almost eight years in prison. Today, how do we identify? We have a lot better ways of identifying people, don't, don't we? What, what do we have? Well, back then they had fingerprints, but they didn't use them that well. We've always had fingerprints. <laughs> they, they didn't use fingerprint evidence, did they? Then, now they do. Okay, okay. DNA, and also to what? Retinal scans. So it's very precise science today. Today we're going to be looking at a biblical text that tells us what our true identity is, so that in fact there is no mistaken identity. Out there in the world, if somebody accused us of being Christians, would it in fact be a case of mistaken identity? Hmm. You know, when we get all wrapped up in our roles in life and what we do in life and the positions and titles and all that we have in life, when those become our identity, those are cases of mistaken identity because our real identity is in Christ. Those are roles. The next few verses of Ephesians really deals with this, and we're going to be talking about this for about seven weeks. Next week, Chris is going to talk about our identity uh, having been redeemed by Christ in verses um, 7 through 12. Tonight, we look at 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose, that is, just as he elected us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined, yes, there's predestination, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved, in the beloved. So the context of this, there are a couple of contexts I think that we need to be aware of. Uh, part of it is last week what we talked about, the historical background and culture of Ephesus. And we'll refer to that briefly. But there's a theological context, and I think there's a discipleship context. You know, Romans is a deeply theological work. All of Paul's works were theological to some degree or another. But my feeling is that even though there's a theological context here, this is not a book or a message or a passage that focuses primarily on theology. There certainly is a theological context. Uh, many who put a lot of emphasis on certain aspects of election and predestination see this as a key passage to emphasize those two doctrines, which really work together, election and predestination. And indeed, we are elect. It's in Scripture. And we are predestined. It is in Scripture. There's no question about that. They're biblical concepts. But I think that this is not primarily a theological treatise. I don't think it's... Paul trying to unfold and show what predestination and election, how, how they work and, and exactly how God has done them. Um, you see, these, this is about identity, really. And these terms don't describe our identity. I, I know we speak of ourselves as elect, okay? That comes close to identity. But being elect is not identity. Being in Christ is identity. Election gets us there. Being predestined has something to do with how we get to that identity, but it's not the identity itself. You see, what predestination and election do is they show how God enables us to discover our identity, okay, and how we came about it. Now, I think that there's another context that is just, if not more important than the theological context, and that's the discipleship context. You see, what Paul's doing here, I think, is he's, uh, he's trying to give us assurance. I appreciated what Mark said a little earlier and, and what Noah said a little bit earlier. I think it was while Noah was leading us in, in song. We take great comfort in the assurance of our identity. And I think that that's what Paul is talking about here. 
He affirms our secure identity, and our identity is where? It's in Christ. Well, really, where is it literally right now? Where's Christ? He's in heaven. Our identity, uh, our identity is secure in him. And I know that he walks with us today, and his spirit is with us. But, wow, our identity is secure where? In heaven, which is unassailable. Uh, this passage also starts to explain the eternal aspects of our identity in Christ. So, if I were to outline this passage, which I have, I would outline it this way. Uh, in, in verse number 3, we see then, when we ask this question, who are God's elect? Uh, there are three aspects of identity here tonight. One is that we're blessed. We're blessed. You see, this has to do with our rich heritage that comes from God. He blesses us, and we are blessed. We are blessed ones. Secondly, in verse 4, we are what? Two things. We're holy. And that has something to do with what we talked about last week. He addresses the letter to the holy ones, to the saints. We're holy and we're blameless. What does that have to do with? Not our heritage, but it has to do with our DNA. That's, that's who we are inside. And it should show on the outside. And then thirdly, in verses 5 and 6, we're God's children. We're God's children. And that has to do with our family name. So let's take a look at the first of those. The, 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 the first aspect of being chosen is that we're blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual what? Blessing. Is Paul making a point here? <laughs> yeah. In the heavenly places in Christ. You see, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's our rich heritage. He talks about specifically some spiritual blessings here. You see, the, the, the nature of our spiritual blessings are that we are beyond the corruptible material world because, remember, they're secured in heavenly places. The application of these blessings is they're applied to the spiritual self to strengthen us. From within. Their origin is literally spiritual. For the phrase means by the spirit, by the spiritual. You see, we've been blessed by the spiritual. We've been blessed by the very Holy Spirit of God. These are divine benefits, divine blessings that Paul is talking about here from God's very own nature that we're talking about. So in the first verse, he's saying, you know, what you have is beyond corruption, it is spiritual, it's applied to your spiritual self, and it comes from the very character and nature of God. And then in the next week, this week and next week, we're looking at five of those blessings, five of those blessings. I will talk about two or three of them tonight, and then later, Chris is going to talk, well, I'm going to talk about two, and then next week, he may not talk about it exactly this way, but he's going to talk about the other three. In verse number four, the first set of those spiritual blessings is that we're holy and blameless. It's a spiritual blessing that has to do with our identity. So if people look at us and, and they call us Christians, they ought to say something about, hmm, we're timid about saying this, but something about holiness and blamelessness about us. I know we're sinners, but the holiness of Christ and the unblemished nature of Christ should shine through. In verse number five, a second blessing is family. We are adopted as children, and we will unfold that a little bit later. And then next week, three of those blessings are in what Chris is going to be talking about. We have the blessing of rescue, and the theological term for that, rescue, is another R word. What's the long R word? Redemption. Redemption, and the product of redemption is, I know, ultimately salvation, but the product of, first product of redemption is forgiveness. And that is found in verse number 7. A fourth blessing is our legacy. We have a legacy we have in verse number 11 that is predestined. Once again, that phrase is used. We have a legacy that is an inheritance. And, of course, that's salvation that results from redemption. And finally, the fifth blessing, once again next week, we have assurance. 
We have assurance by the sealing of the Holy Spirit that comes in verse 13. So those are five spiritual blessings that he enumerates in this passage that have to do with our identity. We are holy and blameless. We are part of a family. We're adopted. We have been rescued. We have been redeemed and forgiven. We have a legacy and inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven, which is salvation. And we are assured of that because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, about which I'll speak in a few moments. These blessings are secured in heavenly places. Uh, this is a unique phrase in uh, New Testament literature. It's used only five times, and every one of those times it's in the book of Ephesians. You see, what this means is those blessings are secured with God. And as we said this morning, God, according to the theistic and Christian view, is supernatural. He is supernatural. He is above nature, so they are secured beyond nature. Nothing can assail or attack them. They are incorruptible, and they are safe with God. They're eternally safe. And you know, about four months ago, we preached from 1 Peter, the first chapter, you'll remember. We talked about that inheritance. The inheritance, it is what? It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away because it is reserved for you, Peter tells us, where? In heaven. Once again, our blessings are secured in heaven. He speaks about these blessings being in Christ. This, again, is a key phrase in Ephesians. It's used 11 times. So those two phrases are very important to our identity in Ephesians. One, they're secured in heavenly places, and they are in Christ. What does that mean? Well, where is Christ today? He is in heaven. I know he walks with us, talks with us today. But is he bodily, incarnately present? Not here, but is he somewhere? Yes, he ascended bodily, and the angel told those that watched him to ascend, the apostles, just as you have seen him ascend, you will see him what? Return. And where is he? He is at the right hand of God, his Father Almighty, next to the, the, the throne in heaven. So Christ guards these blessings that are proclaimed here in heaven. So they're absolutely safe. Where did Christ secure these blessings? He secured them on earth through his death, burial, and then what? Resurrection. And now he guards them in heaven. They were secured here. They were gained here. They were won here. The victory was won here, which means that there must be some application of those blessings here and now and not just when we get to heaven. So we can begin to enjoy those blessings even while we are here. So it's not just the forever, beyond, but here and now. And they are in Christ uh, for those that are in Christ, for those that are chosen in him, in verse number five. So what should our response be? We, they should be to bless God, as Paul does. And the word literally means to say good words to him. We are called to two kinds of blessings. To bless two in two directions. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we are blessed, doesn't he? Blessed are, and he goes through the Beatitudes. Remember the sermon that we did on the Beatitudes? We said that when God blesses a person, he does it for what reason? Not only that they would receive the blessing, but they would what? Share the blessing. And then Jesus in Matthew 25 tells us how we do this. By giving to those who do not have to give the drink of water to visit those that are in prison to take care of the sick. So in as much as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brothers or sisters, you have done it unto me. So we are called to bless others, but sometimes we forget this. We're also called to do what with this spiritual blessing? To return it to God and to bless God. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, <laughs> oh my soul. That's not just a phrase that we sing. We are called to bless the Lord when we worship, and our worship is not just what we do in the sanctuary on Sunday morning or what we do here tonight, but when we depart here, we depart not only to serve him, but to worship him by doing what? By blessing others, and in there, thereby we do what? We bless God. So these spiritual blessings that we have are not just to bless us, they are to bless others. And to bless God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his what? Benefits. What are those benefits? The spiritual blessings about which he has spoken here. This is steeped in the old concept, uh, Old Testament concept of family and blessing. Barak. In the Old Testament, the father blessed whom? The son. As the son kneeled or knelt before him. That's really what the, the phrase means. The word Barak means to kneel or to bless the one who is kneeling. So you think about that. <laughs> Jacob got his stealthily, didn't he? But he got whose blessing? He got Isaac's blessing. Okay. Uh, later, Jacob does what at the end of Genesis? Genesis 49. He blesses each one of his sons, which suggests there are a couple of things involved in the blessing. There's the passing on of a legacy, and the legacy of Christ is given to us. And also, do you remember what Jacob did? With each one of those sons, he pronounced with that blessing a what? A destiny. He identified what was going to happen to each one of the tribes. And along with that, when we're blessed and we receive these spiritual blessings from God, we not only receive the legacy of God, we then come alongside him and he helps us walk through life to the chosen destiny to which he has called us. God has called each one of you to a destiny and a purpose. And there's an expectation when the father blesses the son in the Old Testament that they will be what? That they will be obedient and they will reflect the father's name and bring honor to it. So all of that, I think, has to do with the idea of this being blessed by God. It is a spiritual gift. And then we look at verse number four. Another one of these spiritual blessings is that, we, that identifies, uh, identifies us, we're holy and blameless. This has to do with our DNA, verse number four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And in fact, in love then begins the next verse, the idea in the next verse. We're chosen. Election clearly is biblical. <clears throat> the verb here means literally to speak out or to pick out. That is to have a group and to pick out of that group and to speak that chosenness. In other words, God made a conscious decision, not since the foundation, not with the foundation, not from the foundation, but what? Before the foundation of the world, before time began, he made a conscious decision and he foreknew. There's no question in the context here. He knew ahead of time, in time, what? Our identity, who we were called to be, our purpose, our destiny, and our legacy. He also knew the choices that we would make. He also knew the actions that we would commit. This morning in this skit, you know, what was the girl's name? Sally Ann. Sally Ann. You mean he knows that what? I think that Ken's cute. Yeah, he knows our... Kevin, Kevin, okay. Yeah. Or Ken. <laughs> yeah, he, he, knows, he knows what we think, even folks, before we think it, okay? He foreknew. So what did, how did he choose us? He chose us according to what? His will. Now, he chose us according to his will, but the will of God is mysterious. How it works, we do not quite understand. There's some people that think that they know exactly the way God's will works. We don't, folks. What we do know is that he knows all of these things about us that we don't even know about ourselves, about tomorrow, where we will be, what we will do, what we will say, what we will think. And he took all of that into consideration, I believe, when he chose. But he chose based on his what? On his sovereign will. There's no question about that. Before the foundation of the world, that is in eternity, before creation, before all time, above and beyond all time. This doesn't just have to do with past. Think about this. God is not bound by time. He operates in time, but he's not bound by it. So this means that he chose us before the foundation, outside of time, and it continues above time into the future and beyond. So election isn't just about what he did sometime in the past. You can't, think, you can't speak of, of election being past with God. It's done in eternity. 
I believe this. I believe God sees everything that has happened, that is happening, and that will happen all at one time. God is, God is not bound by time. So his election, his predestination, isn't just... And you see what we do? We tend to do this with election. We tend to say, oh, well, God did that back then. No. God did it before back then, and God is doing it beyond now, and God continues to do it beyond the future. Isn't that amazing? He is not bound by time. Now, what we do as humans is we want to box God into a, in a small box and say, well, he did it then, and then what happened as a result of that? When you start thinking of predestination in this election as being bound, unbound by time, then, folks, that complicates my clock. I can't begin to get my mind around that. What it does tell me is I have to be very humble when I start saying I know exactly how God has done this. Does that make sense to you? Well, it does to me anyway. Okay. <laughs> there are two views of election, as you can see on the slide. One is that, uh, oh, by the way, I think the point that I would take away from, you know, the boundlessness of, of God's election, not being bound to time, is this. We were secure in our identity before the foundation of the world. We continue to be secure in our identity, and we will always be secure in our identity. We take great comfort in that. There are a couple of views of election. We are chosen in him. There's no question about that. There is an emphasis by some in theology to say that individuals are elect. That is, individuals are chosen before the foundation of the world. I chose Jim. I chose Bob. I chose Sally Ann. I chose Kevin or whomever. Uh, God chose them, and he chose them to be in Christ and be saved. There are others that put more emphasis on this. In Ephesians they would say, no, the elect is really not the individual. The elect is who? Christ. See, Christ is the chosen one. And those that are in Christ then are elect. So it begs this question, what is the role of faith in all of this? In trusting Christ. In verses 12 and 13, uh, you actually deal with part of that next week, but not all of it next week. So two of you are going to deal with that, okay? Those who believe are in Christ. There's no question about that. Here's the question. Who are those that believe? That's really what it comes down to. And there are two varying opinions. Well, actually three on this. Calvinist will say this. You see, God chose, and man is totally depraved, and man's will is unregenerate, and man, woman, cannot believe for salvation until their will is regenerated. And God chose some to be elect, and those whom he chooses to be elect, then he regenerates their will, and they're capable of believing. So the role of faith in Calvinism really is something like this. Faith is a product of election. You're elect, and then you have the faith to believe, and then you can be saved. You can't be saved without faith, but you don't have the faith to believe unless you're elect. Does that make sense? There's another way of looking at it. Uh, the non-Calvinist will say this. No, Christ is God's elect, and anyone who has faith in Christ is elect in him. So the emphasis is on those who trust in Christ or elect. The Arminian position really would reverse it. They would say that faith is not the result of election. Faith is the what? Cause of election. I'm uncomfortable with both of those. You might expect that, I guess. I'm a bit of a nonconformist. Um, I do believe that the focus in Ephesians, my personal view is that Christ is God's elect. You look at 1 Peter 2. You see, we come, to, we come as to a living stone, and who is the stone? Christ, who is chosen and precious in God's sight. Uh, later, two verses later, he's identified as the elect cornerstone. I, I believe the passage in Ephesians is talking about Christ being the elect. Here's where I differ with both the Calvinists and the Arminians. I don't think that faith is just a product of election, and I don't think that Election is a result of my faith. I believe it's a result of God's will. But I believe this, and frankly the Calvinists would disagree with me, that God gives everyone the capacity to believe unto salvation. 
anybody can believe unto salvation when they have heard the word of God and they know and they're convicted by the Holy Spirit to respond to him. And I would say then the elect are those that believe and that are found in him, they're elect in Christ. Now God knew those that would believe. He foreknew them. And the Arminian would say that. Here's where I differ. There's something mysterious about the way faith works. If I say that faith is the cause of election, I make it my work. I believed, and because I believed, God was obliged to save me. Well, here's where I stand. I think that God gives everyone faith, but it is not my faith that saves me. It is the faith of Christ that has been given to me. So in a mysterious way, it is Christ's own faith in me, operative, responding to the Holy Spirit, that then God foreknew, not because I was good, not because it was a work, but because of the work of his son Jesus Christ that is working in me, and he chose me before the foundation of the world. And you may not agree with that. Um, a lot of folks don't. But once again, folks, when we try to pin this down and parse it and divide it and splice it theologically, however you describe it, in human terms, there will be a flaw. It's sort of like the Trinity about which we will speak next week. And thank you, Chris, for doing the blurb at the end of the service this morning that I did not mention, okay? But thanks for telling folks that that comes next week. We're going to be looking at the Trinity. Who in the world can explain the Trinity to anybody's full satisfaction? Well, it's sort of about this mystery of where does God's will meet man's faith? Here, Paul's purpose isn't to do all of that, which I just did, okay? It isn't to build a theological system. No, I think it is to, it's not to build a doctrine of predestination and election. It's not to identify who is elect and who is not elect. Do we know who is elect and who is not elect with absolute certainty? No. First of all, because I'm not you and you're not I. And secondly, because only God really, 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 really knows whether the decision that you have made for him is sincere and true. And that is one of the reasons that we are told to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. But he wants us to be assured of that. And the assurance of that comes through whom? Not myself, not the works that I perform, but through the spirit that bears witness to my spirit that I am genuinely what? God's child. So I don't think that, that he's trying to identify who is elect and who is not elect. What I think he's trying to do is to assure us that those who trust in Christ are elect in him. So who are the elect in Scripture? That term is used in a number of different ways. It's used of God's kingdom people. That's the, that's the way that I think it is used here, okay? God's kingdom people, it includes Israel and Deuteronomy 7, identified as you are my chosen, you are my special people. It's used to identify the church. In 1 Peter 1, we are what? We are a chosen elect generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation in that passage after the cornerstone. It is used by Jesus to talk about those that will be gathered someday. In the end times, those that are still alive, he says that the angels will go to the four winds and they will gather the what? The elect. Actually, not just those that are living, but those that are beyond living, that are living eternally. So it's used of God's kingdom people, but it's also used in other ways. The elect were Jesus' disciples. It says in uh, Luke, the sixth chapter, that he gathered his disciples and then he elected, he chose what? Twelve of them to be what? His apostles. So you see there's a sense of election there. And then he looks at those twelve in the week that he um, is to be crucified and he calls them to him in John 15. And he says, listen, you did not elect me, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. He's talking to the twelve. Election is used also in, in, in the sense of specific people that are chosen to do certain things. So I think we have to be careful that we don't just use this term election indiscriminately. So for example, in Acts the 15th chapter, Peter says of himself, I was elect, I was chosen, for what purpose? To be the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles, hence Cornelius. That's at the Council of Jerusalem. In Acts the ninth chapter, it speaks about Paul. And 
Paul later learns that he was chosen, he was elect by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. There's another way that it is used. Uh, Certain of the angels are elect. I think what it means there is that those that chose to be faithful, God has chosen. They are select and the others are not. So we have to be careful how we use this term elect. The key point of this verse is to describe the blessings that come from being chosen. The blessings and to give assurances. And what is the ultimate blessing? Now, Chris, this gets beyond my sermon, and it actually gets a little bit beyond yours. Well, no, it's in your your sermon next week. In verse number 11, we see the ultimate blessing, I think, of this chosenness, and that is redemption. So I'm not going to deal much with that. I'm going to let Chris deal with that. But it is one of those blessings, and it's the ultimate blessing. And we are called then to, to go and to share that blessing with others aren't we? So in 2 Timothy 2, he exhorts Peter, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, elect. Why? So that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So redemption is where all of this is pointed, the ultimate blessing and forgiveness and salvation that comes with it. Now, a product of that being redeemed A product of all of that, we come back then to this verse. If we've been redeemed, then we have been made holy and blameless. Holy. We've been made saints. And this points back to the first two verses. He writes this to the saints, to the hagioi. So it's not just a a, a noun that describes an identity there, but it also points to our behavior. We are called then to live a a holy life in a holy way. In verse number 4, just as we're identified as saints in verse number 1, because of the blessing that is in us. The other aspect of that blessing is that we are blameless, without blemish. Now, we're all sinners, but when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. This is based on what? Christ made the unblemished sacrifice in Hebrews 9. It's based on that. Through through his purchased blood, Peter tells us, which is without blemish. And then the passage that we recite often at weddings then, as a result then, he has chosen someone to be his bride because he has shed his precious blood. He has made his precious sacrifice, both of which are unblemished. He has purchased this person to be his bride. And who is that person? The church. The church. And we are the saints that constitute that person, the bride of Christ. And we are told in Ephesians 5 then, what does that mean? It means then that we are part of his glorious church, with it, which is what? Without blemish, blameless. So not only does he call us individually to be blameless and to be forgiven, confess our sins and to be forgiven, but also the church. And then we come to the last of the the blessings for today, before next week. And we are called and we are blessed as God's chosen to be his children. This is our family identity. He predestined, there's that word, predestination. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. See, this is all couched in these two verses in the context of predestination. Once again, I don't think that this is to build a doctrinal case about predestination or a systematic theology. I think it is to show God's motivation and purpose. What are his motivation and purpose in predestination? You see, we all get wrapped up in trying to explain how God did it in eternity and the results of it. But I think that Paul here is talking about what was his motivation in predestination and what was his then purpose? What was the motivation? Why did God send his only begotten son into the world? Love, because he loves us. You see, this is rooted in the identity of the father. Fathers love what? Their children. It's blessed be to whom? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. But what else does it say? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God chooses his elect because why? His motivation is he loves them. And he demonstrates his love by choosing them. 
It's not to demonstrate his judgment. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, if a person is not elect, and we're not going to get into that, identifying who is elect and isn't elect, but if a person is not elect, it's not because God doesn't love them. I believe God loves everyone. Some would have you believe that God loves only those that, you know, were chosen as individuals before the foundation of the world. I believe God loves every one of his creatures on the face of this globe. It's not because God doesn't love them. It's because that person has not, what, trusted and chosen, elected to trust and to love God. It's not because God doesn't love them. You see, his, his motivation is love. What is his purpose? What is the purpose of his, this predestination? The purpose of the predestination is very clear. It's adoption. It's by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who wants to bring members into his family. Here's, I think, how predestination works. Oh, he knows how predestination works? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. I can only tell you that, okay? And where do, you, where do we go to find out where predestination works? Romans 8, of course. So we're going to deviate for just a moment. Where does predestination begins? It begins by those whom he calls, and then he describes those whom he calls, those who are elect, and it says that it begins with his foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. When he predestined, he didn't predestine to put a person in a position. He predestined them, well, I guess it was in a position. He predestined them to be what? What does Romans say? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is the purpose of predestination. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This fits the context of Ephesians 1. It's consistent with it. Well, you would expect it to be. Paul wrote both of these letters, and the Holy Spirit authored both of them. But you see, in verse number 4, you see, we're chosen in Christ, who is the son of God. And verse number five, we're adopted as sons through Christ. So this fits the doctrine of election and predestination, rather, in Romans 8. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And then what happens as a result of that in Romans? In verse 30 of chapter 8, those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, then he called, called the elect And what then happens when we're called and we hear the call and the Holy Spirit convicts us and we have the capacity to believe? We do what? We either do this or we don't. What do we do? We believe or we don't believe. That's not spoken here, but it is implied. We respond, and as a result of that response, we are what? Justified. Those whom he called, he justified. He does this how? Through Christ's blood, which was shed for us here on earth, and he makes us right with him, he removes the sin, he cleanses us, and then we will be, Paul tells us in Romans 8, glorified. So those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified, and that's kind of a future present. Are we glorified yet? I don't think so. That is yet to come. And we will receive the spiritual blessing which is reserved for us in heavenly places. You see, a reason, I think, for his emphasis on predestination here is not to lay out a theological system. It is to assure us, to encourage us, and to remind us of this. When we're elect, it's not because of what we do. When we're elect, it is still according to God's grace and not our works. I think that's what he's emphasizing here. It's not our work, but it's by, as it says in this passage, by the kind intention of his will. For what? For the glory of his grace. You see, adoption, the, who, who is the adoption agency in the kingdom of God? Well, you would expect me to say, what is the adoption agency? No, the adoption agency in the kingdom of God is a who, and who is that who? It's Jesus Christ. It says so here. Christ is the primary agent of adoption. For those who are chosen in him, in verse number four, Christ is the instrument through whom we are adopted. 
well, what does that language begin to sound like? A little bit later in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, most of you can quote it. For by grace you are saved through faith, you see. It is through faith in Christ. He is the instrument of this adoption. And he has given us that faith to believe. It's not our faith by ourselves. He empowers our faith with his faith to believe, and through that then we are justified. You see, God empowers us to believe, and in so doing we respond to the call, and we become, and here's the point, we become God's children. That's the result. That's what Paul's talking about here. Not the theology of predestination, I think. He's talking about the instrumentality of Christ, and it is not we who do it. And as a result, then, we become adopted as his children. 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. He, went, he came to those that were his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right, the power, if you will, to become what? Children of God. And then John later tells us in 1 John 3, For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We're not glorified yet. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. He's the instrument of adoption, and he is the means of adoption, in whom we're adopted and by whom this adoption is shared. Verse number 6, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Who is the beloved? It's the beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we come to some conclusions here. The biblical concept of adoption is one of the blessings that comes then as being chosen. In Old Testament, in Israel, Old Testament was portrayed as God's adopted son in Exodus 4. In the New Testament, there are only five places that adoption is spoken of, and they are all by Paul in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. And you know the, the, the premier passage that describes this adoption in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And of course, that's a general term that applies to both genders. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but you're a child of God. And if a child of God, then you're an heir of God. Adopted. Now, that's kind of secondhand, isn't it? The son of God is the son of God is the son of God. We are not the son of God. We're adopted. But you know, natural birth on this earth does not guarantee that one might not be disowned. That happens all the time, doesn't it? But you know, in ancient Roman history, you know it was different. Adoption was different. You see up here Augustus Caesar on the left, adopted to, uh, he was adopted by, uh, he adopted Tiberius Caesar, who was in the center, and Tiberius Caesar adopted, who's that other guy? Who's the next one? I know because I, I looked ahead of time. Caligula. Those two were adopted by their predecessors. And what did it do? It gave them full status as son in the family. Not part status. Full status as son. So we are given full status with Jesus Christ. It was permanent. It could not be taken away. Once in Roman culture, a father adopted a son, he could not break it. He could not disown that son. It was permanent. And it granted an inheritance, an estate. When we're God's children, we have full status with Jesus Christ. It is permanent. It is timeless. It's not just in the past or the present. It's forever in the future. And we have an inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. We become part of God's household. So we're no longer Slaves, he tells us later in Ephesians 2, but we're fellow citizens and saints in God's household. The Son has prepared a place for us in the Father's house, and we become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. God seals us. He guarantees this, and it goes to the sermon after next, 
when we will come to that final blessing of being chosen by giving us the Holy Spirit of promise. So how do we know and how is it secured permanently? Paul tells us in verse number 13. And Romans 8 makes it explicit. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know that you're elect? How do you know that you're chosen? How do you know that in eternity before the foundation of the world, God chose you lovingly and knew from that moment, you can't even call it a moment because moment has to do with time, but he knew that you would be in his kingdom forever. How can you be assured of that? Well, we have some things that we do that give evidence that we bear the fruit of the spirit, I know. And we say that we have believed, and we really truly believe that, and I'm not discounting that. But the absolute final determinant that assures us absolutely that we're God's children and we are elect is he sends us his spirit, and his spirit bears witness to our spirit, and it is the seal of his promise. And what do God's people say? Amen. And what? Praise the Lord. And that's how he ends this with what? Our response should be great praise for the blessings that we have received, an open praise to God and to bless him for what he has done. So our identity in Christ tonight, we've, we've talked about a couple of things. We are blameless, we're holy, and we've been called into God's family, and he secures that with his Holy Spirit. As we go forth in the world today, I hope when you walk outside the door, if you're arrested by the officials, it is because you're arrested because they have identified you as a Christian and it's not a case of mistaken identity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.